Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. I got a chance to work with her on Team Ontario. So she grew up playing for Scarborough Titans. She went on to play for McMaster, where she's an OUA champion. She represented Team Canada with our youth national team, one of the awesome training groups. And she's going to play professionally in Hungary next year. So please welcome to the show, Camilla Haas. Camilla, thanks for doing this. Oh, Josh, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So let's get into it. You grew up playing for Titans. So at what point... Did you know club volleyball existed? At what point did you know you wanted to play post-secondary? Like, when did you choose this to be your sport versus everything else you had going on? Right. So, honestly, I think that transition happened around grade 11. Um, I was actually really big into figure skating as well as track. So, up until grade 11, those were, like, my main sports. And if you would have asked me in grade 11 where I was going to go post-secondary and what sport I was going to play, um, it was going to be hands-down track. So I was looking at schools down the States for track. I was uh, I was competing mostly as a heptathlete. So I was doing seven events, and it's the the entire event itself is usually run over two days over a track meet. Anyways, and so that was kind of my dream, my passion. And it was probably like around November in my grade 11 year where one of my good friends you know, really encouraged me to go try out for a club team. And so that's how I ended up joining in my 17U in my 17U year, I joined Titans 18U team. And that was my first little, you know, I dipped my toe into that club volleyball experience. And, you know, little did I know that that summer then I made Team O and then I trained with our youth, youth national team. And then university coaches started talking to me. And honestly, it kind of just snowballed from there. And I've never really looked back. Awesome. So was that one of your first experiences with like a team sport? Like I understand track is a team sport. It's kind of teams within teams, but more kind of focusing on being an individual athlete. So was that something that drew you to volleyball was just the idea of playing like a team sport and having to work with other people while being a competitive athlete? You know, it was definitely quite the transition going from, like you said, Josh, I kind of grew up around teams uh, around individual sports. So that team atmosphere was something that I've never really experienced. And honestly, I, I really liked like, the group of friends that I got from it, like instantly, you know, like you join a team and then all of a sudden you have 12 best friends. Right. And it, I mean, it was just so, yeah, it was so welcoming and I really enjoyed the community around it for sure. So did you have expectations when you came out to team Ontario or how did you hear about that or who talked you into it or what made you want to pursue like a team Ontario trial? Because I'm sure you're thinking when you started, this is easy and you're making all these teams and, and competing <laughs> at a level, but that's not the traditional path that we all take to uh, be a high level volleyball player. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, my parents have always pushed me from the get-go in anything that I really do. So as soon as I told them that, hey, mom, hey, dad, thanks so much for paying so much money, you know, for me to do figure skating and to run track, but I think I'm just going to drop everything. I'm going to try a new sport all of a sudden. They were definitely like, all right, like, if you're going to do this, then like, you know, do it and try your best and prove to yourself, you know, how far you can kind of go with it. So uh, definitely my mom and dad were big advocates for like, oh, like you seem like you're having a lot of fun. Well, you know, Timo's like this, this is an opportunity that you, that you could possibly pursue. Like, why don't you go give it a shot? As well as my coaches, to be honest, too. Like at Titans, they were pushing me along that path too, being like, Mila, you've come so far in such little time. Like, I wonder what else you can do, right? And so they definitely encouraged me to, hey, go try, try out for Timo. And so I tried it for Timo and I, I had no, Josh, I had no expectations. Like, honestly like as my coach for yourself like I'm sure you kind of saw that I was very new and very didn't really know what I was doing and stuff like that so I kind of just went with the flow and enjoyed the process to be honest yeah looking back I wish I would have well I feel like I did ask questions I feel like I should have asked more questions because the other squad had 
Veltman and Kira Shannon, and I forget the third middle. Might have been Brianna Golding, and then we had yourself, Lane Van Buskirk, and, and Braden Tutton. So five out of those six confirmed are playing pro indoor, and I think Brianna's trying to do some stuff on the beach. So I, I didn't realize the middle group we had on Team Ontario that year was all <laughs> going to be professional athletes. But what were some of your first impressions? Like, obviously, a, a very physical athlete, but how do you feel like you you learn volleyball so quickly? Or what were some things that helped you? You mentioned your coaches at Titans and obviously being around Team Ontario, but what helped you transition so quickly to be able to, like, make the jump as fast as you did? Well, I think, like you said, being a very physical athlete, like, having started sports and, you know, getting into them super competitive at such such a young age, I feel like I, I got a really good grasp of my body like you know how girls can grow or guys I guess too can just grow really fast and then you're tall you're lanky and like you don't really know where your arms end (laughs) um I never I never really like looking back I never really felt like I experienced that like I was always you know lifting weights in the gym and I was always doing this and always doing that so I felt really connected with my body so jumping from like track or figure skating to volleyball I really only needed to learn how to play with the ball Whereas like, I felt like I was already physical enough to keep up with the girls at that level. So I was actually super lucky in that sense. Nice. Yeah. Um, so as you kind of went through, like, what were some of your first impressions of playing at National Team Challenge Cup? Because obviously you were still learning about volleyball and now you're playing against people from all over the country, right? So was that when it clicked for you that you could play at the next level? Or was it when you've got your like first notice that you were being recruited or a university coach talked to you? Like at what point did you know you wanted to do this at the higher level? Oh, that's a good question. I definitely remember going into that um, Team Challenger Cup kind of like with my eyes wide open and I was just in such awe of like, wow, like these girls that are surrounding me right now are just like, they're just so driven and so passionate about the sport and, you know, just so good that I really went in with the mentality of like, I can learn a lot from everyone in this gym, right? Like coaches, players, everyone included. So I think once I proved to myself that you know, I, I, I got through a game there, you know, um, and that I can compete with these girls. I was like, you know what, I, I kind of want to push myself and I want to see how good I can get. And I think you're right, Josh. I think it was actually at that, that tournament out in BC that I, you know, even before I got welcomed to the youth national team that I was kind of along that path, I was getting pushed towards that. Like, I think I want to go, you know, maybe pursue this post-secondary, right? Like it was just, there was just so much new and so much, unknown that I, I really wanted to see what more there was to offer if that makes sense yeah yeah definitely so you're you're I'd say we were lucky because the program existed but we weren't lucky enough that you had a competition to go to but with them bringing back the youth national team how was that experience overall for you because it was kind of new to some athletes and coaches and we really didn't know what it was about but it sounded like a great opportunity and a great training group so as somebody who went through it what can you tell us that you kind of gained from that experience oh man definitely the first thing that I'd say was the atmosphere that was there in so so what happened was we got moved from so we were playing where were we Josh we were I think we were in, we were in Richmond I think we were at the Richmond Oval and I think we stayed in Richmond as well yeah okay yeah so so from there we got bussed up to the Whistler like Olympic Athlete Village where the 2010 Olympic athletes were held and um you know just you know having well, well first of all you know like you're put in a bus and like you're with all these your teammates or your, 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 yeah, your fellow athletes, and you get moved to this training ground. Like the first thing that we did was we walked through the Olympic Athletic Village, and you know we saw the rings and everything, and it just it felt so like wow, like we're here to put in work and we're here to get better, 
you know, and this is kind of where the Olympic athletes stayed. And it, you know, I couldn't help but feel so special and be like, wow, like if this is something that I want to do one day, like I'm definitely on the path to get there. Right. Uh, but it was good. Like, like our schedule was, it was, uh, very well laid out. Like, you know, like in the morning we'd have like a stretch session and then from there, then we go to breakfast and then for breakfast, we have a mobility and stability session. Right. And then we talk about nutrients. We'd have our first on court. We'd come back, we'd ice bath, we'd have a rollout session. Like it was like, I'm not kidding you, Josh, like probably from like 7.30 a.m. to like 6 p.m., um, we were doing something and it was to better ourselves ourselves in volleyball, whether it was watching video, on court, off court. Like it was it was so volleyball intensive that I think like I just, I loved every part of it. And honestly, I think that's kind of where my idea of like, if this is what it's like to live a professional athlete life, like I think this is definitely for me. Like I just, <laughs> I was, I was loving it for sure. Awesome. So the next step, what went into your recruiting process? Like obviously choosing Mac and you, you have a great education and you're going on to play pro volleyball, but what were some other schools you were considering or what were some other things that you factored in when you were looking at post-secondary schools? Definitely. I think Western, uh, you, actually, I think U of T was definitely my, when it came down to like the last two choosing between, it was definitely between Mac and U of T. Um, Christine Drakich, the head coach of the women's volleyball team at U of T, she was you know, she sounded like a great lady to be coached by and the program seemed, seemed super strong. And so I honestly, it came down to the fact where, you know, Tim Luke's my coach at Mac, he invited me to stay with the volleyball girls for one of their summer training weeks. And so I stayed in the volleyball house and Josh, I just instantly fell in love with that entire environment at Mac. Like it was just, it was uncomparable to all the other experiences that I got from other universities where I, you know, I went to Western and I went to um, U of T and it was just, it was just something special. I, I could just tell. Yeah. Maybe hopefully Tim doesn't mind, but can you give us some, just some inside stuff before we get to the on-court stuff where McMaster's so strong at recruiting that it always feels like they have new athletes cycling in. So how do they manage the team building there where you're going to get along, but you're still going to battle at practice. Cause it seems like they have a lot of depth and there's always position battles going on. So how did you feel that as a freshman and did that change at all as you kind of became a senior and there's all these young athletes coming in that might play the same position at Jiju and might be highly recruited? Like how did the coaching staff and the leaders on the team kind of help that environment that was so competitive? I think honestly, a lot of it stems from respect. I think, you know, I, I, I speak for myself, but I think I can speak for a bunch of my, my fellow teammates here when I say that, you know, from day one, there's just this level of respect that you have for the coaches at Mac for, you know, the amount of work and passion and everything that they put into the program where, you know, you come in and, and you know that, you know, for lack of a better word, you're kind of at the bottom of the food chain, right? So, I mean, I came in and Macy Sorensen, you know, the, the starting middle at the time, she, she definitely inspired me right from the get-go. Um, she was in her fourth year when I, when I came in. So she was going to play her fifth year when I started my first year. And Josh, like I, I looked up to her instantly. Like she was a leader on the court. You know, she, she was a great player. She has so many accolades from her university experience that I came in and I was like, that's the person who I want to be leaving this program. And so I feel like that's very common for us to kind of find someone attached to them and kind of like follow in their footsteps. So by the time I got to my fourth year here playing, um, you know, I definitely, before I started my season, I looked back and I was like, if I was a first year, like how would I want to be welcomed into this program? And you know, who would I like to be looked up to? So I definitely tried to take that 
responsibility into my own hands and try and show the first years that came in this year, like, this is what it means to be a marauder. And, you know, this is kind of how we carry ourselves. Awesome. Awesome. And anyone who's ever been to McMaster, obviously the athletic department just has a strong sense of tradition. It seems like a lot of teams are involved and there's banners all over the place. So with that being what the public sees, is that fair to say that at McMaster, all the varsity athletes are kind of getting along? And when you're at the athletic center, like, do teams ever cross paths? Do you go watch other teams' games? Like, it just seems like a great team environment from what, what's perceived as an outsider. I'm wondering, as an insider, how often are you interacting with other varsity athletes or kind of supporting the whole environment that is, like, the Marauders? Yeah, no, totally, Josh. It's it's such a community. Like, I... I so D back, that's that's what we call our 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 gym there at Mac. And uh, so like every time you walk into D back, it's like you kind of like walk into this bubble of like family. So you know you walk in and working at the front desk, it's very common to have a varsity athlete. You know, four, five, six maybe people working there, and they'll all be from different teams. And you know, it's it's just like one of those jobs where like, hey, if you need extra money, like this has great work hours, and you know. Um, the staff running that and the people who hire us varsity athletes there know that, hey, you know, you have you're on court from this time to this time. So, like, we'll schedule your work around that. Right. So super flexible. So you walk into your friends there and then we have we have what we call the, the wicket, which is the like um, physio room, I guess you can say in D-back. And that's kind of where all the court sports and like wrestlers and stuff like that, like indoor athletes, that's where we all go to get physio treatment and everything. And I honestly think that's what brings us the closest because you'll have all of the volleyball people, you know, in that physio room rolling out, getting ready for practice, just as like the basketball teams will be finishing. So then the basketball teams come in and, you know, they're getting their tape off and all this. And so like basketball and volleyball interact. And then as you're leaving, you know, you pass all the runners that are coming in from their workout. And like, it's, it's like a, um, it's like a cross section where like everyone kind of crosses paths and says hi to each other. And it's, it's great because that's kind of where you go in to do your game prep and, you know, honestly like I, I definitely say leaving Mac most of my friends are certainly varsity athletes because of how tight-knit that community is for sure awesome awesome and what can you tell us about the on court that they do at McMaster so it, it seems whenever you go on the website and you look at the roster Tim isn't afraid to carry a lot of players right so how are they managing that many bodies in the gym are you guys doing position specific stuff is it mostly team stuff and gameplay like how did you find you're developing as an athlete, but the team's also like remaining competitive and, and going for a championship every year? So something that we used to do in my like first and second year was we'd have team practices like for two hours a day, you know, the, the, the typical, um, but you'd also get called in for Indies individuals with the, with the coach. So Tim would just, you know, it will, which I found super helpful because in my first and second year, you know, I guess less in my second year because I redshirted that one because of my injury. But in my first year, you know, I was just so behind in terms of tempo, in terms of the speed of the game, in terms of my strength and everything, right? So he'd call me in for an indie and we'd work on very specific skills to myself. But um, when our assistant coach, Nate Jansen, came back in my third and fourth year, we ended up doing more of like, So we have like a two hour practice window that, you know, for the first 30 minutes, you know, liberos would be just called in and liberos would be on their own courts. We have three courts to work with their own court and they'd be doing strict passing drills. Right. And then you'd have us middles with our setters in the middle court and we'd work on our connections. And then you have your outside attackers on another court. So I think that ran really smoothly where like for like the first 30 to 45 minutes after, obviously after a warm up, everyone would do very, position specific skills 
and that would kind of be the goal of your practice. So we'd get with a, either Tim or Nate or one of our other assistant coaches, and you know we'd be working on a specific um, skill at the beginning of practice, and we were then expected to once we got into a team practice, team environment, gameplay, and whatnot, you, we, you kind of worked on your own position-specific skill and tried to incorporate it for that practice. So no, you're right, like Tim and like you know, the great, the big team is great because there's just so many bodies and there's always someone to talk to and compete with. Um, but you're right. Like, I think that sectioning it off at the beginning, like you, like I was just with my middle. So like for that 30, 45 minutes, like I wanted to be the best middle on the court. And that's definitely what like made us go head to head. And then he expanded it to everyone. And then you can kind of showcase your skills and gameplay. Yeah, and a name you brought up, I just want to pull on there. I'm a big fan of Nathan Jansen. I think he's a great guy, and every time I get a chance mm-hmm. to talk to him, I talk his ear off. But he's kind of been labeled as like a stats guy, and I think that's limited. That's a, a very good strength of his, but I think he's actually a fantastic coach. So what can you tell us that he brought back to your program? Because obviously he would have switched and coached at Niagara for a little bit while you were first at Mac. But when he was there in your third and fourth year, like you said, what are some things that he brings to the environment that he's just so helpful and just a great guy to be around? Yeah, no, he is definitely like, I, I think I'll look up to him for the rest of my life for sure. An amazing coach, amazing guy. I think he's super good. Um, uh, he like, I'm, I know him as a very good technical coach, Josh. So like, you know, he's, he's really big on, he brought like, um, the vert bounce to our program, you know, when he came back. So he then, you know, monitored like the amount of jumps we're doing, how high we're getting, um, like our workload. And, you know, I was shocked to see the difference when, because he had all that data on us all the time through every practice, through every game and whatnot, he was able to so much better manage how we felt at what points in our season. And I felt so much more energized because of it. Um, you know, comparing just my first year when I was just like, you know, going 110% on everything that I did. And I just felt like I couldn't get enough sleep. And, you know, it was the classic first year, like, Oh my gosh, this is so much to, you know, him helping us manage our workload by ourselves. I found that super helpful, but I, he's a great hands-on coach too. Like, during practice, he's, he's not afraid to pull you aside and, you know, talk to you like technically and be like, Hey, like you need to check, change this approach. Like you need faster last two steps, for example, you know, and then you go back and you try to incorporate that. And he's really good at touching on everyone a little bit during practice and making you feel as though like, you know, there's someone watching and definitely pushing you to get better. And it's not just you pushing you. Awesome. Awesome. And just one thing I wanted to check on with you switching to like a team sport. When I was at a club tournament this year, we were lucky enough to be at Rim Park and there was a a boys hockey tournament going on and seeing how a a hockey player prepares in their OHL draft year as like a 15 and 16 year old, like those kids almost behave like professionals and seeing how, you know, 17 and 18 year old volleyball players behave. It's just different because I think we start our sport a little bit later and it doesn't feel professional until almost post-secondary. So with you being a high level figure skater and a track athlete where so much depended on you and your actions and you were really an individual performer, did you already have a feel for nutrition, hydration, all that stuff? Because listening to your practice schedule and then knowing your game schedule, it sounded like you needed to be ready to battle every single day and you were expected to get better every practice, right? Like you didn't want to go into a middles drill and just be fatigued or not into it, right? So what helped you get dialed in every day? Because I, I find the OUA season is pretty long, right? So how, mm-hmm. did anything transfer from you being an individual athlete that helped you in the team sport? Or was that something Mac helped with, with getting your sleep right, getting your diet right, hydration, ma- managing class, like all those little things that go into being like a professional? So I think, uh, I think I have to go back a little bit in my timeline here. Like my dad still plays, um, squash competitively. Like he, he went to the world a few years ago still. So him being a very, like a professional athlete himself, you know, I kind of grew up around that, like 
if I want to get there, this is the stuff I want to do. So you're right. Like from a very young age, like he was teaching me about like, Hey, like you can't just have this bowl of Cheerios for breakfast, right? Like where's your protein source, right? And stuff like that. So I certainly grew up around it. So you're right. It wasn't anything foreign. And then, you know, we got into Timo and then we started talking about nutrition again. And then, and then I was with the youth national team. We started talking about nutrition again. And like, it was something that just kept coming up that like, it was great because it was reinforcing, but it was never like a, like when I got to Mac, it wasn't a shock to the system being like, Oh, like what I need to eat and sleep. Right. Like, Whoa. (laughs) Right. So, um, I think it was a little bit of a head of the game there, but funny enough, Josh, I think the biggest transition going from my individual sports to all of a sudden team sport, like a very team sport in university where, you know, we're doing team building and we're around each other 24 seven was actually letting go of my little pre-game or pre-practice. Like I got to do this. Otherwise I'm just not going to perform well. Right. Like, I feel like most of us have those, like, Oh, like if I don't get eight hours of sleep, like you get into this little bit of like, Oh gosh, like, am I really going to perform at my best? You know, when I came in, I had like my one song, like Mr. Brightside by the Killers that like, I'd love to listen to before every practice, before every game. Like it was just my like go to get myself into the rhythm, you know? And then all of a sudden I got to Mac and, you know, I'd be talking to my friends up until the very start of practice. And then it wasn't long before I realized that, whoa, like my routine that I love to do as an individual athlete, like it's got to kind of be more flexible to incorporate the people that I need to work around and play with. Do you know what I mean? No, oh, that's an awesome example. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing you did mention that I wanted to circle back with and what we've learned through this show is is high-performance athletes, when they suffer an injury, like it goes a little bit deeper than, oh, I just I can't compete and it's boring sitting on the sidelines. Like It can really affect your identity and all the hours you put into and having that taken away and, and your social group. So with you having to redshirt a full year because of an injury, how did you kind of tackle that and really approach it that you were going to come back and you were going to be stronger? Or how did you deal with that, like, like I said, being on the sideline for a full year and losing a full season of competition? Mm, yeah. So I think the first thing we, we have to understand here is, um, so the injury that we were, you're talking about was my ACL. And so it wasn't just a typical, like, uh, you, I tore my ACL and it was just straight ACL rehab. I like, I completely tore my ACL. I had a 75% tear in my, my MCL. I had both my lateral and my medial meniscus torn up. I had bone bruising happen to my knee. And, you know, mind you, this is all, this all happened within, you know, I landed from one block, like I, you know, a motion that I do, I don't know, a hundred times a day. And my knee just slipped and, you know, it, it, then that's it. Like it, you know, everything just boom right there. And then you're right. And then I had to tackle that injury and now the rehab. But I think one of the biggest things that, you know, helped me through that rehab was honestly, like I had to take it a day at a time. I knew, um, you know, coming out of my surgery room, my surgeon had told me that he wanted nine months, no, no on court. So he was like, you have nine months, Camila, to work up and get stronger again and teach your knee how to move again. And then you're going to come see me. And then if I find it that it's okay, then I'll send you back on court. Right. So it's, I mean, nine, nine months is daunting. It's like, wow. Like that's almost a full year of like, you know, watching my friends do something that I love to do that, you know, I just, there's just no way that I could possibly do it with them. So, you know, I, I found getting into a routine really helpful. Like I'd wake up in the morning and man, God bless my, my strength and conditioning and, and my physios there at Mac because, um, you know, Ben, my, my, my strength and conditioning coach that went, went through this entire process with me, you know, he'd wake up at six 30 for me just so I could get in, into the gym and do my full, like two hour lift 
before class so that I could still join the girls and watch them at practice and still be there to support them and still be in the team environment, right? So I was super lucky to have all that staff, you know, support me and try and work around my schedule and include me and whatnot. But certainly like focusing on like one day, like, all right, I need to get, you know, this, this much weight more on my single leg squat and stuff like that definitely helped me through the entire process. And when you were finally cleared, were you hesitant when you came back? Because obviously a knee is a pretty gnarly thing and actually hurt it on court doing an action. Like you said, you've done hundreds of times, thousands of times. Were you hesitant when you came back or once the, the doctor gave you the clear that you, you were confident and you did the work that you could, you could perform and really go for it? Yeah, funny you say that because honestly, I think I have a very poor, stupid meter. Like, you know how some people, you know, some people are like, I know this is not a good idea. So like, let's just calm it down and like, let's take it slow. I think, I think mine is very poor because I, I think I jumped, I jumped right back into it. Like not, not really knowing what the repercussions of like, what if I'm not ready? Like, what if this just snaps again? Right. I kind of went in with it with no fear. And I was like, I was just so ready to go. I was like, please coach, put me in. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here and I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. Right. So honestly, like, I, I actually, I think Carly, my physio was the one that was like, all right, let's take it slow here. Camila, let's take it slow. And all of a sudden, boom, I'm, I'm off running. And she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, whoa, we can't do that yet. So no, honestly, I think I, uh, I kind of went in it with no fear. And I was like, you know, I'm so excited to do this. You know, it's either going to work or I didn't even think about the or part, you know, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so switching to a volleyball focus, anyone who's ever seen you play, I think the way you move in transition is really impressive. Like the way you can get off the net when you're finished blocking and still be a threat. So was that something that was worked through with club with your footwork? Did you have to learn new footwork when you got to university? Like your ability to get off, like I said, and hit a three or hit a quick or, or really be involved in the offense where lesser middles tend to give up in transition, I find. So how did you find not only like the, the footwork and the technical aspect, but just the attitude that you wanted to work your tail off and be available if your team got a transition opportunity? I think that was, I think it started with my own drive to like, I kind of want to be a star and I want to be like a big swinger and I want to, I want to end these rallies, you know? And so knowing that I wanted to do that, that, that was kind of like, all right, Camila, like, you know, blocking first, like that's, that's my first priority always as a middle here. So if I want to get to that second part and still finish the rally, I was like, I, I need to make myself a threat just as much as my outside hitters are. But that was also really ingrained to us. Uh, and I, I think it was actually Nathan that was the biggest advocate for that because he was like, if, if you don't make yourself a threat, like it, it really put a wrinkle into our full offense of like having all hitters available. Right. So he was the first one I think that's really started to nag us about, you know, as soon as you block, like no matter where you are, you need to get off that net. Right. It's, it's not really to a specific spot, just like block and quickly get off block and quickly get off. So I think he was definitely one that was like, really encouraging us to be a threat guys. Like even like, you know, like you said, even though you're a middle and you want to give up sometimes don't like, we need you still. And this could be credit to either the coaches or the setters or even the middles, but I found a McMaster, you guys just don't run a 31 and say, this is a McMaster shoot and it's going to be this height and this speed. Like it seems like it was unique to every middle. And even looking at some of your game tape, like you hit a, a quick, a little bit higher than I think other teams are willing to set it. So how did those conversations happen where you're a jumper, you want to hit the ball a little bit higher, maybe the set's a little bit I don't know, slower for lack of a better term, but how did you guys really individualize what the middles needed? And I'm sure what all the other hitters needed on team versus saying this is the offense hitters need to adjust to what the setter's doing. Honestly, I think that really had to do with um, just personally 
how close we were with our setters. Like all the setters that I worked with at my time at Mac, they were super, you know, like asking you like, Hey, like during practice, like, you know, can I put like, can I give it too high or can I give it too fast or can I, and like, they really pushed you, like pushed us middles, like our setters pushed us middles, you know, I want to sit you faster. Can I sit you faster? I want to sit you higher. Can I sit you higher? And like them pushing that bar for us really wanted, like it encouraged us to try and do the same. So, you know, actually a perfect example is that this year, actually we slowed our tempo down entirely. We were almost hitting meter balls in the middle. And, um, that was definitely driven by Haley Kranix, my, my fellow teammate, you know, she touches like 10, five. So, in order for her to get off the net, get into transition and get up, like she just needed more time. And so, you know, the coaching staff this year kind of made an executive decision. Like if we want to capitalize on her, or her spike touch here, we need to slow the tempo down entirely. So, you know, knowing how good of a, you know, how, how much she brought to this team as a team, we were all like, you know what, if we can really use this to our advantage, then we're all going to adjust a little bit. So we slowed down the middle and the, t- uh, the tempo in the middle and then we sped it up on the outside, right? So outside hitters then had to adjust to a much faster tempo. Us middles had to adjust to a much slower tempo. But I mean, you know, all of us are, are just so trusting of our coaches that we we're like, you know what? If this is what we're going to do, we're going to do it to the best of our ability and we're going to do it. Now with the, the higher or slower set in the middle, obviously that attracts more blockers than anyone who's ever seen your clips or, or seen you play live. Like it wasn't unusual for you to have a double block situation with you hitting out of the middle, right? So mm-hmm. with you working through those situations, did that come down to a vision thing? Did you just understand angles really well? Like w- with them making the ball a little bit higher, which draws more attention from the blockers, how did you still find a way to like terminate and find your shots? So actually, Josh, I think it wasn't until my fourth year here when we slowed down the tempo um, that I actually saw, start to see my block, like keep in mind, you know, when I was in club, I kind of, I was put into the fast tempo right away. So I kind of, you know, learned to just go up and just swing, just go up and just swing. Right. And I don't think I ever had the opportunity to, you know, slow it down a little bit and show to myself that, you know, these are where my blockers are standing. This is probably where they're going to end up. You know, if, you know, the left side's bunching or the right side's bunching, you know, small little cues like that, that I never really picked up on with the fast tempo, because it was always like, you know, you, you kind of always feel like you're being rushed. Um, but this year, once we slowed it down, like I, I, I was able to see them and it, it felt like I, I was no, it was no longer just like a load my arm and go load my arm and go in the middle. It was like, I, I, I'm not kidding you. Like it felt like it, everything slowed down. And I was like, I was able to, but you know, between the time of getting off the net transitioning to then moving forward and trying to attack, I was able to see where's my middle, where's the left side, where's the right side and where's my open spot. Right. And I mean, I'm in the middle of the court and there was always either, you know, I could either cut left or I could cut right. And honestly, I I'm, I'm super like, it definitely grew me as a player having that slower tempo, getting my, you know, my understanding better of the game there. Yeah, like I honestly, like it was just so different, but it was, it definitely diversified me as a player for sure. Now with high level blockers on the show, I'm always excited to nerd out and talk about like what cues are they picking up on and where are their eyes and drawing attention. So when you started at university or even in your club career, were you like a ball setter, ball hitter one that like seems to be like the, the bread and butter that a lot of coaches teach or what is getting your attention at certain moments? So once, once the pass is available, where does your attention go as a middle so you can, you know, 
adjust to all these because the OUA is running it wicked fast, right? So for you to be mm-hmm. responsible in closing blocks, there's got to be more than just waiting for the setter to, to release the ball, right? So what's getting your attention once they've received the ball? Yeah, I mean, my peripheral vision definitely has to be used for sure. But I mean, the pass goes to the setter and my eyes are on the setter because, you know, her hands are going to tell me where, where she's going. But that's definitely not to say, like, I definitely use my peripheral to make sure that where is my middle, you know, because if she's running a 30, then, like, I'm probably not standing right dead center in the middle of the court, right? So uh, my peripheral vision definitely does, you know, a lot of work there. Um, But, I mean, as soon as the setter releases the ball, it goes straight to the hitter and then their arm, whoever's attacking, right? Because that arm's going to tell me exactly where she's going to go. So I definitely rely a lot on feel like I know some middles will say that you know they go from the setter then they look at their their blocker just make sure where they are but for some reason like I I I could always feel my my outside hitters and where they were and we were really good about communication so you know they'd always be talking if they're staying inside if they're going outside you know when they're going up so I definitely had a lot of help on my side when closing blocks which allowed me definitely to look through the net I think a little bit more than maybe some other teams could. And how much video work did you do to, to kind of read the setter? Because I think there, there's some amazing setters that don't really have a body language tell, and then there's others that you can tell if they're running towards four, they either prefer the short setter, they're going to force the long set back, or if they take two steps back, they're going to set this ball. Like some tendencies are, are available to find and some are not, right? So when you mm-hmm. say you like to look at the setter a lot when they're receiving the ball, how what helped you with those body language cues was it video or was it just getting some reps at game speed and kind of being like okay they did this at 4-4 in the first set now we're in the third set I know when she does this I'm gonna you know respect this set or little tricks like that like how did you find shortening the gap so you just weren't reacting to the set or releasing I think I'd say like there were three main things that really attributed to that one was uh the video that we did like Nate Jansen always ran a video session um, we'd have like three video sessions a week and he was really good about saying like, this is the tendency of the setter and this is what you should be looking out for. The second one was honestly just my, my experience through the OUA. Like, you know, you, you kind of come in and by the time you're leaving, you're kind of leaving with the same people you came in with. So, I mean, that's four years of playing kind of with the same setters on some teams, right? So like you can definitely kind of pick up patterns and you just, you, you kind of get a feel for how they play. And three, Nate actually he would incorporate, like, sometimes he'd jump into our practice and, uh, man, God love him. He, you know, he, he'd set for the other side sometimes and he would set tendencies that the setter that we're about to play that weekend would be setting like, and I found it super helpful to kind of practice that. Like if we were, for example, keying in on the middle, like I needed to practice, if, if the middle was running a 30, I would, you know, I would shadow the middle to the 30, but then if Nate was going to go set a back set, like I'd have to be able to run all the way from the 30 zone to, you know, block a right to side attack. Right. So we, he definitely incorporate those into practices. So we get used to the movements that we would expect coming up for our game day on the, on the weekend. Yeah. I'd like to pull on that if we can, because Lane was really good. She talked about at Pitt, they have a deliberate way to float. They have a deliberate way to like close their footwork. So obviously it's a big responsibility. If our listeners can just imagine you trying to block a 30 or a shoot and then get over to the back set. So the other team running a spread offense against you was max strategy for you to stop and just get a block up and, and leave a big seam. Did they want you to sail and try to close the block? Like what was their philosophy on you having to, to work against a setter that really wanted to spread it around? I think it definitely started with, um, Nate was always big on a split step. So, I mean, you're always kind of on your toes, especially when you have to, 
you know, shift over to the 30 zone, but know in the back of your head, like, Hey, but I also need to close that right side attack. Um, so he was always big on like always on our toes. And as soon as the setter set, like you'd split step, which would theoretically help us start our movement in one direction or the other. Um, so the movement would always start with us, but our defense was based around us leaving seams and just getting up straight, you know, being, you know, a big block in the middle, like, like even Haley Kranix, for example, like she's a, she's a huge block. And the worst thing that could happen to us was, you know, to reach and just get our block abused. We had a great defense behind us and like, we knew it. So if we could get up a solid block, even if there was a huge gap in it, Josh, like we were much more successful digging those than we were, you know, having it kind of shank off our block and then a scramble to like, Oh, try and get a ball that we have no idea where it's going. Right. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So during your time at McMaster, you guys won, you won an OUA championship and you also were a silver medalist. So was that something that's talked about? Are you putting that on the whiteboard in the team room that like, we're going to be in the championship game? Is that something like you walk in in the fall or is it more process driven? And we're not really going to talk about the outcome and we're going to be, you know, put in the work every single day and we'll get our, our work in. Like where did McMaster fall on that spectrum of, of goal setting and talking about winning versus process? No, I think from the get-go, uh, Coach Tim Lukes, he's he's really good about, like, we're here and we're here to win a national championship, right? And um, some years, uh, you know, like two years ago or even last year, you we definitely goal set with the mindset of, like, this is a fairly fresh team. And, you know, we lost, like, two years ago, we lost, like, eight starters, you know, which is big, which which just means that the next year, like, we're starting from scratch, you know, for lack of a better word for it. But although we, although it's always known that, Hey, we're working for this national championship. We want this OUA gold. Um, definitely our goals throughout the years have definitely reflected this circumstance that our team is currently in. Right. So if we, if we enter into a season with like three girls already injured, possibly from last season or, you know, from a more lengthy injury that they have to recover from, that's always, put into our goals so that nothing is ever nothing ever seems not achievable if that makes sense nice and I'm always curious just because I struggle with this with my own coaching when you're preparing for a team like let's let's just say okay we're gonna play U of T like is Tim saying Alina by name are you calling her the right side are you calling her number three like how do you guys get the information across versus like making someone into a star right so obviously someone like her who's played and started her whole career are you saying the right side likes to do this shot or are you not to be towing around and being like Alina's going to hit angles that other right sides don't. And we need to be aware of like this on our base defense. Like how much do they, they sugarcoat it or how much do they avoid like overhyping players when you guys are doing your game prep for, for some high level players that you face? Mm. Uh, no, like for Alina, who's a fantastic player, like we're, we're not scared to say her name, you know, in video, our coaches will be like, you know, talking more so to the first years who've never experienced her play, for example, you know, this is Alina Dorman and she has this shot, this shot, this shot, this shot, you know, we go through an array of like, these are her favorites, right? And like, this is what she's really good at, you know, and this is possibly a weakness that we could export her with, but you know, we're, we're definitely not shy about, you know, this is this person and this is what they can do. Because I think the first step of like, being able to defend a, a, a fantastic attacker like that is just realizing what her possible shot range is and you know how much damage she can actually do right because then then we can start to brainstorm as a team as to like all right what's the best block to put up against her you know are we going to take away her line 
force her into a cross shot or she would take away her cross and just, you know, stand there and just try and dig her line. Right. But I mean, Nate, he, I mean, being, you know, super statistical and whatnot in his game, um, we, we definitely have different blocking patterns, even for different attackers. So, you know, when in between points, when us blockers would be standing up at the net, you know, we'd say by name who the three blockers were, who the three attackers are, which would then cue to like, all right, Alina, we were blocking line, you know, but on their left side, it may have been a, a cross block, right? So having those names to faces definitely, it, it definitely was kind of the basis of our entire defense around their attacks. Nice. Yeah. Selfishly, I think that's where I'm leaning towards where we're we're not going to overhype somebody, but we are going to respect. And and I don't think there's anything wrong with saying by name where I've worked with coaches where they say number six or the left side or the P1 and they don't really want to like overhype them and they want to like limit it. But I think when you're in the heat of the moment, you can't really sugarcoat what certain players can do. So I think it's good to show respect of what they can do. But then the big follow up that you just said there is like, what's our plan to stop this or make them uncomfortable? Like we're just not going to be starstruck. We're going to have a plan around it. So uh, selfishly, thank you for sharing that because that confirms the direction I kind of want to take it. But uh, in in that theme, as a middle blocker, are you getting a lot of information from the bench? Like when you go off and you're hanging out with like the box squad, are you checking shot charts? Is Nathan giving you reminders, or were you retaining information from your prep? Because like you said, the the left side in this rotation is going to be blocked this way, but maybe the P2 gets blocked a different way, right? So a lot of information to retain, and they might have different tendencies in transition, right? So how much are you retaining versus how much is is it somebody's role on the bench to kind of make sure that you're getting those reminders? No, you know what? I we, we definitely weren't very big on reminders. Like, we'd be given the game plan maybe on a Thursday night, and we'd be playing a Saturday game. Um, so we have a full day to, like, you know, kind of memorize what we need to do, understand where we were going, you know, kind of go through like visualization in terms of like, you know, what our blocking patterns look like with the faces in front of us and whatnot. So, and I mean, we were all really good about that, Josh. Like we'd all go in, you know, with the game plan, like this is what we're doing. Right. Um, and comfortable with what we said we were going to do, but certainly like by the first time out, even, you know, coaches would be down on their knees with their whiteboards and we may, we may have to shift around because, maybe this one player that we were game planning for, you know, didn't start the match or is out on injury or they're now doing something to try and take us off our game, which made them totally change their game plan. Right. So being flexible, I think was definitely one of the, something that we definitely had to, you know, stay on our toes with. Um, Cause I mean, like the game of volleyball, it's always changing. It's like a chess match in that sense. Right. You know, I make a move, but then if you don't make the move that I'm expecting, then I need to come up with a recourse, you know, and how to defend that. Right. So, yeah, I mean, we had Alex Hahn, one of our assistant coaches that were on the bench, and he was always, he was statting with data volley the entire game. So if I was ever curious about, you know, um, a certain middle's attacking patterns during the game, I could easily come up to him. And just like that, he'd have the information on hand and he'd give me a number and, you know, a direction that she's hitting or blocking or, um, you know, with our extensive staff on, on the bench, for sure, Josh, it was, there was always someone I could turn to and get an answer like right away if I wanted to. Nice. And just one more question about your prep, because I think that the game is so fast that you're almost doing a disservice if you're not doing this prep work about what's about to happen. So with you guys, would you look at more individual players versus rotations? Because I like the point you just brought up about, oh, they made a sub or they changed this player. And then I find that coaches who want to do tendencies and credit to friend of the show, Nate Go from USA Volleyball, their data volley guy, he, he shared this with me and I thought it was a great idea that if you only do rotation one and you want to study distributions, is like you said, as soon as the setter changes or maybe a different right side, well, now the combinations have all changed versus USA right now, what they're doing is 
is, okay, Camilla's in the front row. She likes to hit a 30 and she likes to hit a high quick. And like, that was what the middle needed to retain. Not, oh, they like to set their right side 46% of the time and their left side, they do this. So with your own retention, like you said, you're not getting too many reminders unless it's an adjustment. Were you a fan of going rotation by rotation or were you going player by player? Um, honestly, it was a combination of both um, for each for each game. We'd have it would be by player if it was like like Alina Dorman, for example, who could just light up the court from wherever she was. Um, you know, that's it's, it's a guaranteed threat. So when she'd be in the front court, depending on her rotation, we'd be doing different things, right? But if we had a setter, for example, who when she was in row one, you know. She, you know, she'd always just chuck it out to the left side, for example, because it was hard to turn and set the back, if it's at the right side or small things like that. Like if, if the setter had a, had a, you know, a consistency like that from a certain rotation, then we'd also take that into account as well. Right. So if the setter was coming from one and, you know, say for example, she, she couldn't set a lean on the right side, then like, we kind of know as middle, it's like, all right, the percentage is, you know, she's sitting 68% to the left. So like, I can kind of cheat a little bit that way but I can't give up Alina, but you know, you kind of have to play those stats and those odds, but you're right. No, we, we, we would do a little bit of both. Amazing. Yes. So glad we got you on the show and hopefully Tim's listening and not going to, you know, choke me out for this, getting all these awesome secrets <laughs> from master. Cause uh, I'm definitely learning a lot and I bet our listeners are too. Yeah. No, thanks so much for having me, Josh. This, this has been a blast. It's, it's great to catch up with you. Yeah, definitely. So, so moving forward, one thing I'm always amazed about is when you decided to go pro, how do you find an agent? How do you get contract offers? How do you even know a club? Because I think we're so far away from club teams that I, I think you can be a fan with the strength of the internet and stuff. But at the same time, it's impossible to know every club and every coach in the world and even what, which leagues are stronger than others at certain points, right? So what was your process in finding an agent and then weighing offers against each other based on you know this country or this club or everything that goes into it? Well, the first place that I started was actually Coach Dave Preston, who's the current coach of the men's volleyball team at McMaster. Um, he has guys on his team that go pro every single year and he has so many connections and he was absolutely fantastic. Like I kind of sat down in his office one day and I was like, Dave, I know nothing about pro volleyball, like, but I think I want to do it. Can you just kind of explain to me what kind of life I'd be living? Like, is this what <laughs> I want to do? Right. And uh, he was super great about it. Like he explained all the ins and the outs and although it was from the men's side, like there were definitely some transferable, like this agent's really good. And like, you know, David would be like, he has kind of a soft spot for Canadians. So, you know, you as a Canadian, you know, asking to play here, like, you know, he, he, he does have connections and he, he would be able to help you. Right. So he was actually the first person that kind of, uh, he gave me three, four names of agents that I kind of reached out to. And, 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 you know, I, I kind of name dropped his name. So the agents were like, Oh, like, I kind of know where you're coming from. And there was already this kind of trust that was built you know, but, but after that, I started actually talking to Taylor Breezeball, which is, you know, one of my fellow teammates that graduated just the year that I came into McMaster. And, uh, you know, she had gone to go play pro and she had a very positive experience. And so I kind of just reached out to her and I was like, Hey Taylor, you know, I'm looking to go play pro. Like, is there anything you can, you know, you know, warn me about, or, you know, what, what, what should this process look like? And she was actually so great. Like she sent me an entire word doc of like, this is what the process is going to be like. And these are the little things that you need to remember. You know, like when signing a contract, she's like, you kind of want to make sure that, you know, you have a mode of transportation. So like, maybe you should ask for a bicycle in your contract, you know, it was small things like that where like, you know, I wouldn't really think about, but it was great to have a second opinion and someone who'd already gone through the process, helped me through that because you know, you're, you're like, Josh, you're so right. Like 
I would never have known what to do without those people helping me for sure. So it begs the question, did you ask for a bike in your contract? <laughs> I sure did. And guess what, Josh? I have a bike in my contract. <laughs> nice, nice. Feels good to get those mini victories where not only are you going to be a professional athlete, but you won a negotiation point. That's big time. <laughs> not bad, eh? <laughs> That's so cool because you're right. I never would have thought of that. And I think what makes the volleyball community so special in my mind is, is people are going to tell you if they had a good experience and they're certainly going to tell you if they had a bad experience. Like if they didn't get paid or their coach didn't give them feedback or, or if anything was wrong with the league. Like I think they're going to share that information. So it's, it's good that you knew contacts, but I feel like sometimes people reach out to somebody who, who played at that club and they might not know them to have a face to face conversation, but that information gets shared really well. So when you were going through with your agent, could you limit things? Like you mentioned you being a Canadian, so they had a feel for what you wanted to do, but could you say, I really want to play in this country or I really want to play at this level? Like what is the back and forth there? Cause I'm sure I'm sure there's people who aim too high. Like if I were to tell an agent I want to play in the Polish league, they'd probably be like, there's, there's no chance that's not going to happen unless it's like division 19. Right. So at what point is the agent kind of coaching you up to say, this is going to be a good spot for you to start and we can climb the ladder or this is a good level or, or all those conversations that go into finding a club as well. Yeah. So, um, my one, my one agent that actually ended up finding this contract that I ended up signing Steven, um, you know, he works out of Toronto here. Uh, he was, he was definitely, you know, one of the best by far. He, we, so I reached out to him and we got on a phone call and it started off by me just kind of explaining to him who I was, you know, this is my personality. This is what my dreams are. This is what I aspire to do. Um, this is the level of volleyball I want to play and the, you know, the quality of life I want to live while I'm over there. Right. And so he was really great about listening to my goals. And then, you know, he just told me that, Hey, I'm going to try and find you the best team that I think will match with you best for your first year overseas. And so I, I kind of gave him a list of like the top countries I wanted to play in. And he had me give reasons as to why I want to play in those countries. So that if he found a team looking for a middle that possibly wanted me to play for them, that was not in that country, he'd be able to make that executive decision as, of like, you know what, I think I'm going to extend this offer to her or this is not at all what she's looking for. And he just kind of filtered it by himself. So Certainly, Josh, a lot of it had to do with just how well the agent knew me and how much how, how much they were willing to fight for me in, in like when it came down to the negotiation and the contract process. So that that relationship that I built with my agents definitely was important to, you know, have finding a successful contract at the end of the day. Nice. And what can you tell us about your new club? So are you in a big city? Are you in a small center? Like what's the foreigner rule in Hungary? Like are you expecting you know, some English speakers on your team or your language skills are going to have to be put on display? Like what are some of the off-court stuff that uh, you can look forward to with your club? Mm-hmm. So I'm playing for Mavalore, a team in Hungary. We're training in a city that's just outside of Budapest. Oh man, I'm going to butcher it if I say it because there's a whole bunch of accents, but it's like <laughs> Shaheska Hervar. That's way better than I could have done. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, it's okay. I, I practiced like 20 minutes before this call. So. <laughs> I made it. Um, but no, so, you know, we're training for, we have, we're on court seven times a week, whether that's twice in one day or not. Uh, we travel for games on weekends in terms of English speakers, there's myself and there's actually this one libero from the States who also speaks English. My, the GM of the team, the, the general manager, he was, you know, the first person I kind of spoke to when I was going through this contract and, you know, kind of sensing what this team was all about and whatnot. And, um, you know, me being me, I was like, well, I kind of want to talk to my coach. Like, Hey, can you, can you set me up with a phone call with my coach? Like I want to meet him. 
and you know the GM kind of warned me. It's like, oh, like Camila, like he doesn't speak you know English very well. Um, it may be a little you know butchered. Like I don't know how proactive this call would be. I was like, oh, like it's totally okay. Like I honestly just want to meet him, right? And so sure enough, he puts me on the call, and uh, you know I say, oh hi, um, you know I, like I'm Camila. It's, I'm, it's you know it's great to meet you. Um, honestly, I just want to hear your voice, and uh, you know I have a few questions to ask you. And then I hear my, I hear myself speak again, as if it's like going through a phone. I hear that exact same sentence again, but you know, it's obviously my voice, but in, I guess, Hungarian, you know, and then I hear a man talk obviously to a translator and that translator then speaks it out to me in English. And I was like, wait, there's a middleman in this conversation, you know, and the, the translation wouldn't always be exactly correct. So I think I spent Josh, I think honestly, like maybe two minutes on that phone call before I was like, you know what? Um, coach, you know, it was, it was great to talk to you or to the translator that you had to talk to then to the phone and whatnot. But I was like, you know what, maybe we'll just stick with email because this is, uh, the translations were kind of choppy and whatnot. So that was my experience of like, all right, like I'm definitely going to struggle a little bit with this language barrier. Cause I mean, my head coach doesn't speak English very well and nor do most of the girls that are there already. So, you know, when, when I posed that question to my GM, I was like, so, so what do I do in practice? If I, you know, the coach is doing a drill and he's speaking in Hungarian, I just don't understand. But so that the the GM only answered with Camila, look left, look right. Bets are one of those two girls knows what they're doing. Just follow the more confident looking one. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I mean, you could look at it like it's going to be this daunting task, but I think the the attitude you're having, you're very positive about it. it it's exciting, and I think it's going to be a great life experience. And hopefully a teammate can translate or like you said you can just watch the drill or or maybe you'll figure it out on your own like was there anything in your contract about language lessons or or was the bike the big win and having residence or or what are some little things like are they expecting you to pick up some language or would they provide a translator or like i said you're you and the american are going to try to figure it out together and hopefully just watch the drill start yeah so i mean i've, I've gotten in contract her, her name is eva um I, i've gotten in contact with her and uh, we've definitely been joking about it, like, oh my gosh, like, what are we going to do in terms of language and stuff like that? But when I brought that, you know, the language barrier up to my agent as a, you know, I was like, how am I supposed to tackle this problem? Um, he, he did actually mention that Hungarian is um, is known for being so welcoming to its foreigners, um, like especially North Americans, actually. So knowing that and knowing the history of this specific, particular team that I'm going to play for, they almost always have at least one or two foreigner English-speaking players on their team. So, I mean, it's nothing new for them to encounter this language barrier, um, which is really, you know, it's, it's nice to know, you know, cause then, I mean, it, it just encourage it. Um, it makes it so that, you know, it's not their first time experiencing it and they have no game plan with it. Right. So knowing that it's, it's definitely, it, it calms me and I'm, I'm like, you know what, it, like you said, if I have a positive attitude going into this, I'm sure this will be the least of my problems. Right. <laughs> Well, that's that's really exciting. Now I got to figure out a way to navigate this and support you when you're away from home. But uh, th this is all very exciting, and I couldn't be happier for you. So this is awesome. One thing I will say is I was excited when we we got you out to the beach and you, and you tried that for a summer. Obviously, indoor is where your passion is. But uh, just to leave an open invitation, we, we'd like to have you back on the beach if this indoor thing doesn't work out. Oh, thanks so much, Josh. Yeah, I mean, there's honestly like it's always a blast to be out in the sun with all my friends and you guys. So yeah, no, definitely. Now, with you turning pro, have you had any conversations with the national team? Obviously, it's not optimal. They couldn't have a tryout or any training or anything like that. But is Team Canada part of your goal? Or is playing professionally going to be your goal and, and you'll approach the, the national team thing when you get an opportunity? 
great question. I think playing pro has definitely always been um, a dream of mine. Like I've always wanted to live that professional athlete lifestyle, you know, just waking up and doing the sport and having all the nutrition behind me and the right, the, the right sleeping right. And just that entire lifestyle. That's always been a dream of mine. So I, I think I plan to just kind of play it by year, you know, you know, going overseas for my first year, experiencing that coming back um, and seeing where that volleyball kind of takes me. But I mean, for sure. Like if, if, if I could represent the Maple Leaf, like that would be fantastic. Like definitely cool. So one thing we're, we're trying to make a, a funny story, like a, a tradition on the show here. So obviously we'll have to get you back on so you can tell some hungry stories, but until then, uh, volleyball creates some unique opportunities for us. So I was wondering if you could just tell a, another story to give us a laugh before we let you go. I think I have to take us back to my first year. It was my very first. So we had traveled to Ottawa for a very first preseason tournament and, um, you know, this is our very first tournament of the season. I'm playing for a new team. I'm playing at a level that, you know, I was, you know, three weeks prior to, I was like, whoa, like this is a dream of mine. And so it, it's finally come true. And there was just so much excitement in the air and whatnot. Right. And, uh, sure enough, um, I think it was Montreal that we were playing in this game and, you know, Tim looks down at the bench and he signals for me to get a paddle. And, you know, within 30 seconds of me being like the biggest cheerleader on the bench to, I was running up to getting, to subbing into the game. And, uh, there I was, you know, as a first year playing my very first, like what, what felt like my very first OUA point. And uh, I got subbed in to serve actually. That's where my rotation was. And so I get to the back of the line and, um, you know, one of the ball kids gives me a ball and I'm like, okay, this is my chance. I was like, you know, it, it wasn't even like. I need to get the serve over. I was, I was already thinking of like, this is where I'm going to put the ball. This is what I need to do. So, you know, I took a deep breath and I, I was like, I always bounce the ball three times. I was like, okay, Camila, I got to stay in my routine. So I bounced the ball one, two, and then I hit the ball off the tip of my toe <laughs> and I kind of kick it and it starts really going and it starts going towards like the ref stand. And I was like, Oh no. And so I, I, I try and like lean for it, but I kind of miss it. And I was like, Oh, oh no, it's kind of gotten to that point where it's just a little bit too far out of reach. I'm going to look a little silly if I try and run after it. So I look over to my coach and, you know, his back is to me and he's kind of already watching the other side. And so I pause. I was like, do I go after this ball? I was like, oh, oh no, but the ref had already blown the whistle for me to serve, right? So <laughs> I'm like, I panic. I'm like, I can't go after the ball. I need a new one. So I turn to like one of the ball kids and I'm like, can I have another ball, please? And um, the ball kid, like he shakes his head. He's like, no, like I've already given you a ball. <laughs> And so I'm kind of standing there in the middle of the court and like, it's probably been like around six seconds now. So like my teammates are kind of turning around and be like, like, what's happening? And the last thing I remember about that point was my entire team had turned around to look at me and I'm standing there at the back of the line with no ball and the ref blows the whistle. Tweet, my eight seconds are up. And sure enough, my first point that I wanted to contribute to this team, I, I, I totally lost. I didn't even get to touch the ball. I didn't even get to serve it. Um, so I was kind of just sitting there, like I was standing there and I was, I felt so silly and so embarrassed. Sure enough, my, my coach just did a substitution right there and was like, okay, like, I'm sorry, but you're not ready for this. So <laughs> I just went back on the bench and, uh, yeah, my entire team kind of knows what my first OUA point looked like, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that it did just go up from there. So <laughs> we're looking good now oh we've had some good ones before but that that's definitely a good story that's one i'll remember <laughs> now that's i can only imagine what you were feeling right because you're just in this helpless situation and embarrassed it's funny to look back now but i imagine in the moment it's like i swear coach i've played before i can do this <laughs> i was 
I was red as a tomato, Josh. Like we have it on film and oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what a good way to end a, an awesome episode. So thanks for taking the time. It was good to catch up and, and hear all about your career up until this point, but what you're looking forward to with Hungary. So thanks for taking the time and sharing all that you did. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, this has been fantastic. Thanks again, Josh.